the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Besides both being apostles, Nathaniel certainly, 99% certainly being the same person as Bartholomew, so besides from both of them being apostles, Peter and Nathaniel have one rather important thing in common. They both call Jesus the Son of God. Matthew does that, or, or Peter does that in Matthew chapter 16, and Nathaniel does that in our gospel text for this morning. But interestingly, they don't receive the same response when they call Jesus the Son of God. When Peter says it, Jesus blesses him and tells him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But Nathaniel doesn't get a blessing at all. He doesn't exactly get a rebuke, but as we heard just a moment ago, our Lord is definitely not overflowing with praise when Nathaniel speaks these words. He issues him almost a kind of challenge. So, why the difference? Well, to answer that question, let's look through the two conversations in our text for this morning, both the conversation that Nathaniel has with Philip and then the conversation that he has with Jesus. So I have to say, I feel like we really get a lot about the personality of Nathaniel from this relatively short text and his just couple of lines of dialogue that he has. So Nathaniel is a young man who seems to be very well versed in the scriptures, which is something we get from Philip's comment to him. So Philip and Nathaniel are friends, and he comes in, he gets him and basically says to him, hey, you know how it is that all the scriptures we're so familiar with have prophesied that the one is going to come who is going to be the fulfillment of all of these promises. The Messiah is going to arrive. Well, we found him. And we found him in Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as Nathaniel hears Nazareth, he starts to get pretty skeptical. Now, this may be reading into it a little bit too much, but if you understand kind of the pecking order of the regions at this time, uh, Galilee is not the top region of Jewish life here. You'll find that in Judea. So it's probably fair to say that Galilee, that Galileans perceive themselves the way those of us who live in flyover country, as it's oftentimes referred to, uh, view ourselves, which is we are proud of our second-tier status and we're glad that we're not like those stuffy elitists on the East Coast but we still have kind of our own pecking order that we create, right? So as you guys know, I'm from Indiana. In the mid-90s, the Indiana Pacers had a fierce basketball rivalry with the New York Knicks, and the East Coasters would refer to that rivalry as Knicks versus Hicks. And in Indiana, we took that as a symbol of pride. We're like, yeah, that's right. And they go, you're just flyover country. And we go, yeah, proud of it. And they go, and you, got, you have nothing but corn in Indiana. And we go, yeah, that's right. And we're proud of it. It's beautiful and wonderful. And they go, yeah, in Indiana, you guys marry your cousins. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're thinking of people from Kentucky. <laughs> they do that there. We're honorable people, right? So there's a kind of pecking order. I imagine we have that with Missouri and maybe Arkansas or something of that nature. And so uh, Nathaniel is from Cana. And he hears, uh, and he hears Nazareth and thinks, you've got to be joking me. You're expecting me to, first of all, the scriptures say that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. But you're expecting me to believe that the Savior, that the Messiah, this king, the son of David, is going to come from that gross, hit town that's been filled with idolatry and weirdness? Absolutely not. That's absurd. So he shows a, a rather healthy degree of skepticism here. 
But then when he comes to Jesus, our Lord is rather impressed with Nathanael's honesty and praises him, somewhat ironically, I suppose, as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, right? Like the old translation, in whom there is no guile, right? He, so Nathanael is not like the Pharisees who will flatter you to your face and then conspire behind your back because they refuse to follow some worthless hick from Nazareth. Nathaniel says what he thinks. And when Nathaniel wants to know how Jesus knows this about him, how he is without guile, Jesus gives him just a kind of mini-miracle. He tells him that before Philip called him, he's, Jesus saw him under the fig tree. And that's more than enough for Nathaniel to become convinced that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And he cries out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, on the surface, this, is not a, this doesn't seem like a rather weak confession of faith. But I think when we look at this in the greater context of this being John's Gospel, the first chapter of John, just a few verses earlier, we've heard John the Baptist refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we can see here that Nathaniel doesn't have a fully formed understanding of who Jesus has come to be. He's the Son of God, Nathaniel seems to see in a kind of earthly sense, where he is a ruler who will restore David's throne and usher in an earthly kingdom of peace. But he doesn't see the full picture of Jesus as the Savior who's going to die for the sins of the entire world. Nathaniel is looking for a throne. He's not looking for the cross. So when he refers to Jesus as the Son of God, He's confessing that Jesus is royal, but not really confessing that he's divine. So Jesus responds by saying, because I saw you under the fig, uh, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that is, of course, a reference to Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob is, is fleeing from Esau, and he lays down to rest and he sees a vision of this great ladder where angels are ascending and descending on it. And the voice of God tells him that he is, that he is the one through whom uh, the very nations of the entire world are going to be blessed, that all families will be blessed through him. So that he's not, God there is not limiting this promise merely to the genetic offspring of Abraham, but saying how Jacob's heir, the one promised to Jacob, is going to unite heaven to earth and bless all of the nations of the world through that. So when Jesus references this Jacob's ladder, he's essentially saying to Nathaniel, look, you are, you eagerly and immediately believed that I'm the true king when I performed this mini miracle telling you where you were just a few moments ago and what you were thinking. Well, if that blew your mind, buckle up, because you're going to see far greater things than that, and you're going to see far greater things than that, because I'm far greater than merely a king. I'm the very Son of God. I'm God in the flesh, which means that you are going to see me uniting heaven and earth bringing heaven down to earth and giving man the right to ascend to God in heaven. When I go to the cross, you're going to see me pulling the love of God down to earth 
and lifting mankind up into heaven and giving all who believe in me the right to rest in the arms of God. So, that's ultimately why Jesus responds to Nathaniel the way that he does, when, uh, differently than when Peter makes that confession of faith with the same words. Peter's confessing Jesus to be God in the flesh. Nathaniel isn't. Which is why, in a rather clever and exciting way, Jesus rebukes Nathaniel for being too easily impressed and too weak in his faith. He rebukes Nathaniel for coming far too quickly to a kind of half-confession. And I have to say, too easily impressed and too weak in faith is very much an apt description of a rather destructive mindset that I think we often see consuming Christians in the world today. It's not hard to wow us. It's not hard to get us to cast aside our skepticism. But it is rather difficult to get us to make a full confession of faith and to keep focused on what Christ is actually about and what this church is actually about. It's hard to keep our faith hungering for the greater miracles that are actually already happening around us. So for a few decades now, we've seen this in suburbia. How in suburban American Christianity, one of the most attractive features for a congregation for parents has been an active youth group for their kids, a youth group that will take their kids on mission trips and offer them life-changing experiences. And I don't want to seem like I'm saying this is an, that this is a worthless thing. It's not. It's a great and wonderful thing if you can do these things as a congregation. And God is certainly able to accomplish great and wonderful things through youth group activities, mission trips, and all of that. But... God always accomplishes something even greater in the waters of holy baptism. And very often, you may have seen this in your own families, amongst your own friends, what do you find? Well, when people are searching out these great and wonderful, amazing, mini miracles of youth groups, they'll end up leaving congregations that baptize their children, that taught their children to trust in the waters of baptism, and they'll join congregations that deny those waters to little children and who teach us not to trust in the waters of baptism, teach us that Christ isn't actually present there, that you can't find Jacob's ladder connecting heaven to earth in those waters. So they'll hear, I saw you under the fig tree, and they'll want that miracle, that little miracle, more than angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man in the baptismal font easily impressed, weak in faith. Every now and then I'll see a story that'll make a big deal uh, on the internet, on the news, you may have seen these as well, where a congregation will get together and they'll raise a bunch of money to pay off people's medical debt. And they're usually able to do this by offering uh, people who, who are never gonna be able to pay anything, you offer their insurance companies kind of pennies on the dollar, and they'll take it. And they'll, make a, uh, and they'll do a lot of really amazing stuff with that, just writing off you know, a million dollars worth of medical bills. And that is a wonderful thing to do. There's no reason why our congregation shouldn't be involved in programs like that. They're fantastic. But people see that, and they see congregations doing that kind of thing, and they cast aside their skepticism, and they go, yeah, that looks like the real deal. That's how I can know that church is really the church. That's the kind of place where I want to be, surrounded by people 
who are miraculously moved to show mercy. But again, oftentimes the congregations that are doing that kind of stuff deny that Christ is present in the sacrament of the altar. And they tell you that there's no real miracle going on there where Christians are actually eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. But people will still flock to places like that because they're easily impressed, but weak in faith. They're happy to trade greater miracles that actually deliver salvation for the smaller ones that, as wonderful as they are, don't deliver salvation. That's how we think in so many kind of commercial ways. We're easily impressed by an amazing music program or a captivating pastor. But when Jacob's ladder is glowing from the Bibles sitting on our own shelves, we're not always that interested in opening them and gazing upon that glory of Jacob's ladder. We're easily impressed when a congregation grows, but we don't want to grow ourselves. We want to grow in hunger for the word of salvation that's surrounding us. Look, if the trees on our church property, and we're all planning on cutting down a little bit, if the trees on our church property all of a sudden started growing money or disease-curing medicine, well, not only would we not cut them down, we'd instantly tell everyone we knew about the great and amazing miracle happening at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. But we often remain silent about the far greater miracles already happening here every Sunday. The miracle of Jacob's ladder, where Jesus Christ our Lord comes to us in the bread and wine, bringing to us all of the glory and majesty and forgiveness and mercy of heaven, and giving us the right to rest in the arms of his Father, uniting heaven and earth. We have an infinitely greater miracle there. We're not terribly impressed by it. So, let's not see the church and our Lord through the imperfect eyes that Nathaniel had on his first day of following Christ. Let's see the church and our Lord through the eyes of the Apostle who later looked upon the resurrected face of Christ and in doing so, saw the greater miracle of Jacob's life. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this one Moses and the prophets wrote about. He's not merely the offspring of David. He's not an heir to an earthly throne. He's also the son of the living God. God in the flesh. Born to expand his father's kingdom beyond the boundaries of Israel. Born to fulfill the promise given to his father Jacob. Born to give his blessing to the north and the south and the east and the west born to bless all the families of mankind by giving them salvation, giving them the right to enter his kingdom of peace. So when you were in need, when you were lost outside the kingdom of righteousness, the Son of God came to your aid. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. Our Lord was born in the city of David to show that he was the true king yet raised in the city of Nazareth, the city of the lowly and the corrupt, to show that he was born to welcome the lowly into his arms and clothe the corrupt with his healing and forgiveness. 
And so, out of love for you, Jesus Christ fulfilled the promise given to David when he took on a crown made of thorns. But even more so, he filled, fulfilled the promise given to Jacob when he breathed his last and breathed out his mercy upon the four corners of the earth, breathing out his mercy upon you. Because there in his dying breath, Jesus transformed that cross into a ladder. There upon that ladder, the Son of God, who had come down to earth, opened the veil of heaven and brought down a flood of God's faith with the wounds in his hands and his feet. Jesus brought down the forgiveness you needed, the forgiveness that would erase your wicked indifference, your idolatry, your every sin, and then gave that forgiveness to you. And in the same way, Jesus brought you up to heaven through that ladder. He lifted you up. He clothed you in his perfection, clothed you in the worthiness you needed to enter the presence of his Father, clothed you in the divine love that gave you access to the divine. From that cross, from that holy, bloody ladder, Jesus carried you into the presence of his Father and gave you the right to become the righteousness of God. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brought heaven to you and you to heaven. So open your eyes and see the greater miracles surrounding you. In the waters of holy baptism, see that your Lord has given you the miracle of a new birth, that he's granted you a new nature that shines and radiates with the name of God, a new nature that is clothed in the righteousness that Satan and sin and death can never pierce. He's promised you in those waters a glorified body that you will receive on the last day, one that will never die, never get sick, never feel the sting of sin or the agony of guilt. In the sacrament of the altar, you have something infinitely greater than every firework and explosion on earth combined. You have the very flesh and blood of God himself placed into your mouth. You have God himself feeding you the feast of salvation, the feast that was always beyond the reach of those of this world who didn't know him, the feast that men have climbed mountains to find, wage wars to possess. You have it as a free gift given to you every single Sunday morning. In the word of absolution, what do you have? You have what men have desired so greatly that they gave their lives trying to find it and couldn't find it. You have the voice of God speaking to you. You have Christ himself speaking through the lips of your pastor, proclaiming his undying love for you, his limitless mercy, proclaiming that all of your sins are dead and gone forever and that the journey up Jacob's ladder is now complete. There, in all of these gifts, you have the King of Kings, the Son of the living God, picking you up in his nail-pierced hands and carrying you into the eternal embrace of his Father. There you have Jacob's ladder. You have this promise fulfilled. And this is what you get to believe as a Christian. That's the kind of faith you get to have as a Christian.
Those are the mega miracles you get to possess every time you enter the house of God. So don't trade them. Rejoice in them forever. Because forever they are yours.